Imagine being born after a great generation. A generation that had seen God do wondrous things, a generation that took play, took part in these great acts of God. Imagine coming after that. How would you learn to become a leader? How would you try to gain credibility? How would you go about learning the ways of God like the previous generation had done? This is the exact place that the children of Israel find themselves in as we turn to the book of Judges. God had raised up Moses, who freed the people from slavery in Egypt in a great and mighty way, part of the Red Sea. Moses leads his people through 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years that we learn was to test them and to strengthen their faith since there was a generation within them who did not truly believe in God. He promised his people a promised land. Moses dies, and then he raises up another leader, Joshua. And God empowers Joshua to go and actually take the promised land, the long-awaited promised land that he had promised to the people of Israel. In Joshua's life, God also did some miraculous things. He parted the river in Jordan. He made the sun stand still in battle. He made these great walls of Jericho fall. All of these things he did to show his faithfulness to his word. He was a God that gave his word and he was a God that kept his word. But then came along another generation. This generation's main task was not to take the promised land, but to finish the victory in a sense. Joshua's generation had come in and taken the land and God said, I want to fully give you this land so that you can serve me and worship me. Think of it as groups of insurgencies surrounded within the land and this generation's task was to simply do away with them. But when we come to the book of Judges, we see that these people began to experience defeat. They began to disobey. They began to worship idols. And in the scripture that was quoted at the beginning of this service, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That one verse sums up the book of Judges. If we fast forward to today, it's not that we have no king. The problem is we have about seven or eight billion kings. Right? Everyone is living their own life, doing their own thing. But what we can learn from this book is that our God is faithful, even when we are disobedient, even when our enemies we succumb to, 
Our God is faithful. His commands are righteous. His compassion is deep. And I pray that as we go over this text, we are freed from being kings of our own heart. We, we don't seek the gods of our culture, money, fame, expression of our identity, the things that can bring us joy, but when we put ultimate purpose in them, all they can do is fail us. So the book of Judges has a double introduction in, verse, in, in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Um, I'll refer to both of them, but our main text is going to come from chapter 2, verses 11 through 19, in four headings. First, evil in the sight of the Lord. Second, transferring faith to future generations. Third, the cycle of idolatry. And finally, a faithful salvation. Evil in the sight of the Lord, transferring faith to future generations, the cycle of idolatry, and finally, a faithful salvation. God had commanded these uh, people to take possession of his land, this land he had given them for a very important reason. He wanted them to worship him, to know him without compromise and without conflict. But when we get to chapter 2, verses, verse 11, we see that his people are disobeying his command. They have not fully taken possession of it, and even worse, some are openly worshiping idols. Chapter 1 gives a description of various tribes and how they are either not trusting in God to take the land fully or outwardly worshiping the enemies that he had gave them victory over. The tribe of Benjamin fails to conquer the Jebusites. Judah is fearful of the Canaanites. The house of Joseph makes a covenant with the Canaanites. Manasseh initially fails to drive out the inhabitants of their land, and when they finally do, they decide to enslave them. Zebulun does similarly. Ephraim allows the Canaanites to live among them, and even worse, Asher and Naphtali, they decide to live among the Canaanites. Imagine God's frustration. I'm giving you this land, I'm giving you this victory, and you simply decide to live under those who I, I have given you victory over. So when we read chapter 2, verse 11, and we see that they did evil in the sight of the Lord, this is what it's referring to. Not fully obeying God's command. Outwardly worshiping idols. The people are, have not driven them out fully, and they are, in fact, rebelling against God. So we see outright disobedience, but we also see somewhat of a passive disobedience. Maybe not doing the wrong thing, but actually not doing the right thing. The people of Dan simply settle in the hilltop 
and don't bother the people around them, even though they have no superiority over them. This is the type of disobedience that this book warns us of. Not just outright disobedience to God, but our passive compromise. We must fully commit ourselves to the words and the rules that God has outlined for us. This book also brings up, and the book of Joshua for that matter, a very uh, common and important question. Was God righteous? He's telling them to make war on these people, essentially, and drive them out. And so to the modern ear, we can ask, man, was, was that right? That certainly doesn't sound like the God of love that I know. First, I think it's helpful for us to make a distinction between common military campaigns and the campaign that God told his, his people to partake in. First, modern warfare, modern military campaigns, unlike this campaign that God supported, are often about land and treasure, imperialism, right? We have a, a very recent example of this in Ukraine and Russia. Russia feels that Parts of Ukraine essentially belong to it because of its history. And so what does it do? It invades and it takes their land. This is not what God had commanded his people to do. In fact, Zebulun and Manasseh are disobeying God because it appears that part of their motivation is for treasure. They enslave the people for economic gain. God did not command them to push the people out of the promised land for economic or political purposes, but so they could worship him without compromise and conflict. Secondly, modern warfare is marked by ethnic and racial tensions. One ethnicity trying to gain domination over another. Again, this is not that. God is not saying that the children of Israel will dominate the world as the, the, the top people group. He's not telling them to get rid of the, the Jebusites and the Canaanites and the Amorites and all of the people in the promised land so that they can feel good about themselves, about their race, about their ethnicity. In fact, God is fulfilling the promise through Israel that he gave to Abraham, that he was going to bless all nations through a people that came from him. So God telling Israel to drive out these people is not due to land and treasure or not due to racial superiority, but again, God is fulfilling his faithful word to fulfill his promises. So when we bring our modern understanding to the Bible, we often misread and misjudge what God's commands are. One of the most compelling pieces of evidence to show that God was just actually comes in chapter one to one of the kings that were defeated. King by the name of Adonai Bezek. He actually has a very gruesome thing happen to him. 
When he flees the children of Israel, they they catch up to him and they cut off his big thumbs and his toes, his big toes. Very gruesome. I only share that so that when you hear his response, it gives evidence that God was just. Hear King Bezek's response to having this done to him. He says, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. The king saw his repayment only happening through God's command as just. Imagine that. Imagine have something so gruesome happen to you and your response is simply, yeah, I kind of deserved it. So not only is this campaign not like modern warfare, not only did the people they overtook, at least some of them, see God's justice, the most important reason why this command is right is because it came from God. He's the essence of goodness. His ways and his means bring about events in history that are above our criticism So by driving out the Canaanites from the land, he promises people he is providing for them a place. He is fulfilling his word so that they know him and that they can follow his commands. So God's commands are righteous, but his people are faithless. Why? Why did the Israelites not follow God's command to take the land? He empowered them to. Why did they instead do what, do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? The book of Deuteronomy is very insightful on this point. Joshua, in the days of Joshua, Judges states that while he was alive, the people knew God. The people followed God. But once he died, and once those who had seen the mighty works of God had died, it says that this new generation neither knew the Lord nor knew what he had done. That's very interesting. So this new generation didn't know God personally, and they didn't even know what he had done. Why is this? Well, part of the reason is pointing to maybe not following what God instructed his people to do in Deuteronomy 6. It seems that there was a lack of communication. There was a failure to transfer faith to the next generation, transfer a biblical worldview to the next generation. Let me read parts of Deuteronomy 6. You shall teach them Speaking to the people of Israel, you shall teach them diligently to your children the laws I have given you and shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and statutes and the rules that the Lord your God has commanded you? 
Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. This is very instructive for us, and it appears was one of the things that maybe didn't happen between Joshua's generation and the next. We should speak God's law and words to the next generation in informal ways. Not just through preaching and and teaching and lectures, but when you sit down, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. As we've heard from Psalm 119 over the past few weeks, the psalmist takes God's word seriously. God's word is precious to them. It is their joy. So we should make a habit of speaking to the next generation, not only the teachings of God, but the encouragements of God, the testimonies of God. He knows the path of the righteous. And when we practice the commandments to pray, to read his word, to forgive our enemies, when we obey his commandments, the next generation sees. The next generation can follow. The next generation can learn of God the way we know God. This passage also makes it clear that this should be part of our everyday life. If you're not sure when to do this, again, think about when you sit down. That's a good time to do it. When you arise, when you lie down, when you walk by the way. All of these are, be- are great times to speak to our children, the the next generation, about what God has done. Secondly, these passages in Deuteronomy highlight the power of our personal testimony. The power of our personal testimony. Notice that the, the way they answer the question of why are the statutes and the testimonies important is not like a textbook would answer. I'm inclined myself, if someone were to ask me, why should I, for example, not defile my body, right? I'm inclined to say, well, you'll get disease, right? If you smoke, you'll get lung cancer, right? We're oftentimes inclined to talk in terms of consequences. But in Deuteronomy, it instructs us to say, to have a response that sounds something like, we were were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out with a mighty hand. We were slaves to our fleshly desires, but the Lord delivered us from defiling our bodies. I was a slave to unforgiveness, but the Lord delivered me. I once lived a life that ignored God. And now God has become my focus and my joy. Do our children know our personal testimonies? Do our children know what God has saved us from and is saving us from? Sharing our personal testimonies with our children in a way that highlights God's strength and doesn't bring undue glory to our sinfulness is a way we transfer our faith to the next generation. Unfortunately, like all people, our children one day 
and we pray for only a season, we'll be in bondage to something. So them hearing the power of God in our life will give them hope. Them hearing the power of God in our own life will will give them a roadmap. So when they are in bondage, they know that there's a God, a faithful king that can save them. This is also this also highlights the wisdom of God putting a church of sinful people together. The, the image that we've heard often, right, is a church is, is, full of, is full of sheep, right? And the pastor and the elders are also sheep. So you kind of have sheep leading sheep with the high priest being Christ. That model is easy to critique when things are going bad, when the, the sheep are nibbling at each other, right? But when we share our testimonies, we see God's wisdom, right? Because we're all sheep, we're all sinful, we're all flawed, but we've also all been delivered from bondage. And so when I speak to your children and you speak to my children and we speak to others, we glorify God. We tell of his mighty work. We push forward the, the gospel and his deliverance. The new generation did not know God's way of life or his miracles, which was part of the reason why they were disobedient. We also see in Judges that they lacked spiritual bravery. We see time and again God wanting them to trust in his strength, but they don't. God giving them the victory, but them being afraid. And these two things kind of go together. If you don't know that God has done something miraculous, right? You don't know of his great works. And then he tells you to do something that seems impossible. You don't trust. And so we see, for example, Judah in the first chapter. God tells Judah to go up. You are the first one to go up and battle the Canaanites. And what does Judah do? Judah turns to Simeon and says, Simeon, come with me. And when it's your turn to go, I'll go with you. We'll do this together. And many scholars point to this as a lack of faith. God told Judah to go. God empowered Judah, but He's, he's wanting a, his people want a tag along. Later, Judah is seemingly winning the battle. And then in verse 19, it says they failed. They were unable to take over the people because they had iron chariots. Now ask yourself, would iron chariots stop God? From winning a battle. No. What this points to is the fear that Judah had when they saw the equipment of the people that they were coming against. These iron chariots struck fear into them. So the generation did not know God nor his works. So when their faith was tested, it withered. You may be wondering how you can become spiritually brave. I don't want to wither. When a test comes, I don't want to 
to dishonor God. I don't want to be disobedient. The best way to be spiritually brave, to become become spiritually brave, is to practice active dependence on God. We learn the commandments of God by being obedient to the commandments of God. We learn the wisdom of God by trusting in the wisdom of God. And so these moments that become difficult to us, where we become fearful, we should pray, we should acknowledge our fear, and then we should obey. If we become anxious, we should pray, we should acknowledge our anxiety, and then we should obey. Because the spiritual bravery isn't something that is just given. It's something that is is practiced. So much so that in chapter 3, God states, I'm going to keep their enemies around so that they can be tested. This test is to build up their faith. So perhaps you have in your heart someone you need to share the gospel with. And you are afraid of their response. Maybe they've rejected the gospel in the past. Give those anxieties to the Lord. Ask him for the words. Ask him for the opportunity. And then be obedient. Perhaps you have in your heart to apologize. Ask for forgiveness or to give forgiveness to someone else. You're anxious about that. What is their response going to be? Right. How am I going to feel by saying, I'm sorry, I did something wrong. Give those anxieties to God. Acknowledge those anxieties and fears and then make the call or initiate the conversation. And then finally, we have to learn to submit to the outcome that God ordains. We would love for every time we share the gospel, every time we ask for forgiveness or, or you know, try to um, give forgiveness, we would love for all of those to end in nice, comfortable outcomes. No awkward silences, no torn relationships, right? But that's just not so. God sometimes pushes us to have these conversations, and he knows that people are going to reject us. He knows that forgiveness will not be given. He knows that relationships may be hindered. And we know that as well, and so we become fearful. We have to submit to the outcome that God has provided. We have to know that whenever we are rejected, Whenever we are obedient to God and it leads to reproach or persecution or even uncomfortable silences, we are sharing in the, in, the, in the sufferings of Christ. How often did Christ have to rebuke a friend? How often did Christ have to stand alone? How often did Christ know the people he was about to speak truth to were going to turn away? Very often but he was obedient to the father as we should. So the cause of Israel's disobedience and lack of faith is multifaceted. It appears that they didn't learn 
the works of God. They had lost the leader. Their, their forefathers failed them. And so what was supposed to be a victory ended up being a failure. The result was these people going into what I call, what I will call, the cycle of idolatry. And we see this in chapter 2, verses 11 through 19. And the cycle of idolatry looks like this. Disobedience, disapproval, distress. Disobedience, disapproval, distress. Disobedience, disapproval, distress. One of the reasons why Judges is such um, a great book is just how exhausting it is. Over and over again, this cycle continues, this cycle of disobedience, disapproval, distress, and you are rooting for the people. And by the end of the book, your heart is broken. But this book is here to let us know that one, we have been delivered from this cycle, but there are people that are active in this cycle today. First, we disobey God. God disapproves of us and he becomes angry. His anger is fueled by love. And ultimately, the outcome of our disobedience leads to distress. Listen to a few of these cycles. And I want your heart to start to feel the exhaust. So these cycles are in chapters 3, 4, and 6. And again, don't try to turn there, just listen. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They, fought, they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He sold them into the hand of Cushan, king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Cushan eight years. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazar. He had 900 chariots of iron and oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. The people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour their produce. This cycle is repeated over and over again. And every time, the punishment is worse. First eight years, and 18, and 20. Now they're living in the mountains. All of this is happening to the people that God had given a land to. 
We all know someone stuck in this cycle of disobedience, disapproval, and distress. We ourselves have been stuck in this cycle. We know the feeling of the, of the pride, right? Living our own way, being the king of our own world. And then the shame that comes when God humbles us. A few points. God will allow us to suffer for our sins. So this idea that, you know, God is my, is my friend, maybe my generation would call him my homeboy, right? God is this close thing to me and he will never let anything harm me. He will. He will let our enemies overtake us from our disobedience. We've heard from the psalm this clinging to the dust, these things that we try to make God, these things that are, could be good things, but when we make them into our God, they cannot fulfill us. One of the ways God can humble us is to show us that these things are dust and still allow our souls to cling to them. This cycle could go on forever and ever and ever. But thank God for the gospel. Thank God that he breaks this cycle, not only for the people of Israel in the book of Judges, but for us by, being, by bringing Christ to die on the cross. Picking up in chapter 2, verses 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge as he was with Joshua, as he was with Moses, as he was and is with all of his people. And he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge, for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who had afflicted them. So we see God's deep compassion for us, even when we're wallowing in our own sin. He is moved to compassion. Compare that to the idols that these people are, are serving, that do not love them, that do not care for them. They are fully devoting themselves to these other gods and getting nothing in return. And here we see a picture of God faithfully, righteously, patiently loving his people, forgiving his people. In verse 17, it describes this cycle, compares this cycle to prostitution. Given our affections to this thing, that cannot love us, that cannot fulfill us, to get nothing and little in return, and then going over and over again back to this thing. And so if it were not for God's deliverance, if it were not for, for the compassion that was in God, this cycle could not be broken. And so in conclusion, the, the salvation that God has given us in Christ is faithful. He is our king. 
even when we don't want him to be. Even when we choose to follow other things, God is our king. He is the king of a faithless people who he gives faith to. So as we take communion, remember that God has been faithful to us. Faithful unto death. He gave his body. He shed his blood. And from that act, our bondage to idolatry, our bondage to the things of this world that cannot fulfill us is broken. Let's pray together. Father, I want to just thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for having the compassion to look on our state, to look on our condition and be moved to save us. We ask that you encourage us to share our testimonies with one another. We ask that you give us the opportunity and the bravery to share your gospel to others so that they too can be free. We know not everyone will put their trust in you, but we know that you are a good and faithful and righteous God. And when we obey you, despite the outcome, you are glorified and you are our king. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.